Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today we have for you the traveler's checklist, visa stamping, the consular process, change of status, as well as tips and tricks for acing the interview at the consulate office. Here is your guide for international travel. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us beyond borders. So today we talk international travel, the pros and cons, the step-by-step process, and a few personal accounts along the way. And here in the state-of-the-art 930 Club Studios, we have three Erickson Immigration Group attorneys here to provide their insight. We have Mina Rafi. Hello. Uh, Storm Estep. Hello. And Jeff DeCruz. Hey, man. Storm, I'll start with you. In terms of international travel, could you just give us a basic understanding of the steps for visa stamping process? Sure, for U.S. entry, sure. Um, So, yeah, actually, entry is like sort of a two-step process uh, when foreign nationals, you know, have one of the alphabet soup statuses, so H's, L's, things like that. The first step that everyone realizes is like the approval notice, right? But there's always like what we're talking about today, the step that's at the consulate, which is the visa step. And so when they present themselves for entry, the first step is to present like, let's say like your L visa. I'm intending to enter the U.S. in L status. And then, you know, then we can look to the approval notice. Uh, that's what controls your I-94, your, how long your stay is in the U.S. and everything like that. After approval or pursuant to like a blanket approval, we do have the step of working with the U.S. consulate, Department of State, in order to obtain a uh, visa stamp inside of your passport, which is a requisite for any foreign national to enter outside of Canadians who are just exempt from these, this visa requirement. Well, we hope so. Right. <laughs> yeah. they, they got it good for now. Um, and can you give us a sense of like that time that it takes, the processing time? Sure. So it's always a uh, sort of consulate specific, like how long it takes for you to uh, go through the process of scheduling an appointment through when you will actually get your appointment or, you know, whether there's an interview or if that consulate is still allowing for drop boxes, you know, for extensions and things. Uh, but usually uh, you'll, you know, you attend your interview, usually takes like 10 minutes or so. Uh, they'll go through the process, make sure you are who you say you are, make sure you kind of, they'll do their own, like uh, making sure you, they also think you qualify for the status. Even, even if USCIS has already kind of like given their approval, they'll do their due diligence. Uh, they'll usually let you know that you've been approved for this visa uh, and then let you know that they'll need to take your passport from you. Uh, and it takes around a week. That's the, like the, their processing time mm-hmm. in order to get that visa foil, which is the, like this, sticker that will never leave your passport sort of like printed and pasted into your passport and then return it to you pursuant to you know every consulate has their own way of getting your passport back to you and so it's just very important to like follow their instructions got it got it and mina you actually just briefly brought up yeah canada we have certain current events that has happened i think this morning was it Yeah, well, I mean, so what it is, is we're actually getting reports. There hasn't been actually a policy or a memo or some sort of directive issued by the Customs and Border Patrol Office. But what we have received is reports that 
CBP is looking into essentially revoking the ability of Canadian nationals to apply for their L1s directly at the port of entry. Now, we knew this was coming for regular L1s, uh, but based on some of our communications with CBP, they confirmed that it doesn't apply to commuter Ls, which are known as intermittent Ls. Those Mm. are typically individuals that uh, work for the entity abroad. In the case of Canadians, work for the company in Toronto, but travel for work purposes to the United States. Now, we've received notification that CBP is revoking any type of renewals to be applied for at the port of entry. So what that means is that for individuals that qualify for intermittent L1s, they can apply for it, the initial L1, at the port of entry. But when it comes time for an extension, which is usually at either three-year or two-year increments, um, they will have to either file directly with USCIS or if their company has a pre-approved blanket L, they will need to apply through the consulate. So they will actually have to go through uh, the consular process. Right. Yeah. So what do you guys think about that? Is that done in any sort of way to help the, the process? Or do we have any sort of meaning for this? Uh, you guys can yeah. make up. It sort of follows <laughs> on the progression that at least I've seen with TN's Visa classification specific to uh, Canadian and Mexican nationals to where, just in practice, we've seen a definite increase in the amount of uh, denials or rejections by people who are applying directly at the border, especially in certain cities, to where they are making it much harder for them to enter the U.S. based upon their classification. I think that's a result of a, like two things, pretty much, which is, one is that they're tightening the meanings of certain TN classifications, specifically like economists, they're uh, really cracking down on people who are claiming under economists, but are actually, or could be viewed to be a financial analyst. And drawing that distinction there has led to a lot more rejections there. And I think it also has to do with without really, like never having been there for the actual application process in itself, it seems to also, however slightly also be a reflection of just the general crackdown that CBP is having at the border in this new administration, which has caused a serious uh, spike in the amount of denials that are there. And you know, some of the people, a handful that I've dealt with, have not only reported being denied, but also being subject to questions that are borderline inappropriate or unrelated to um, the actual application itself. So I don't know if that's exclusive to just, you know, the officer that they were specifically dealing with, but, you know, like one time, yeah, yeah. but like one time of that is too much. So, right. Yeah. And like, we're talking about like at CBP dealing with Canadians at the border where it used to be very like, you know, same day we can get you into the country, you can get started on your work. Whereas now these policy changes that the government is not announcing, they're not allowing Mm -hmm. for comments and, you know, things like this to go through the normal adjudicative process to change. So really what we're seeing too, like uh, policies like this, where uh, everything seems like this should be approved, you should be able to enter. Businesses are relying on this to their detriment, you know, to find out like, oh, we've changed this policy overnight pursuant to like a CBP internal memorandum that you can't see sort of a thing. It's completely ridiculous. I mean, like there's no justification for for them to be doing this and it really does hurt u.s businesses who are counting on this labor especially with canada because a lot of companies have offices in toronto and vancouver especially with the current administration more companies have 
opened offices, so they rely on their ability or their employees' ability to be able to come back and forth, be able to apply uh, for a visa directly on the day of their travel. But I think this goes yeah. even further in terms of targeting L1s. Uh, it started off with actually the change in FAM, where they sort of narrowed the scope. Historically, Canadians could apply at any port of entry for their visa. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years ago, they changed the rule that you physically had to be in the U.S., uh, excuse me, in Canada to apply for the L1. And now they're saying, well, no, well, now you can't apply um, and you have to file through USCS except intermittents. And then now this is the third one that's coming out and saying, oh, no, no, we don't even accept intermittents as well. Yeah. Um, So it's been, I think, part of a general trend to um, make it a little bit more difficult. Yeah. And I guess that's what's sort of happening uh, today currently. Let's uh, pull back a little bit for because I know some people who are listening as their first time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's a little confusion with the consular process. Do you have uh, a pros and cons list? Sure. I mean, the the main difference between um, a change of status versus consular processing is when the status will actually take effect. So with a change of status, once a petition is approved, the individual is in the U.S. and will automatically change status to the requested classification as of the start date on the approval notice. No additional action is required. You know, if you're a student in F1 and your approval date is October 1st, 2019, and you haven't done done anything wrong or done anything to result in a revocation or and your petition's just approved, as of October 1st, you will automatically change to H-1B status and no additional filings are, are required. For consular processing, um, once a petition is approved, you will not automatically change as of the effective start date. Instead, you will remain in your current visa classification for as long as it's valid, and it's and the approval is considered dormant until you decide to um, travel outside the U.S., apply for a, a, the requested um, classification, issued a visa, and then upon re-entry into the U.S., you will have been considered to have activated your status, and that's when your work authorization and status um, would begin, assuming that it's for a work slash um, non-immigrant visa. Right, right. I guess when you continue along this process, we're talking about some of the common tips that you suggest for your clients uh, to prepare them for upcoming interview. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'll just rapid fire between all three of you guys. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the tips? Uh, tips Specifically for the L1s, EIG actually offers prep calls, uh, mm-hmm. typically okay. where we go through this entire process with each individual applicant. We let them know, you know, in terms of like how to dress, how to speak, um, uh, talk a little bit about the type of questions that we expect the consular officer to be asking them and then help them frame their responses in such a way that really highlights, uh, you know, in the case of L1B, the technical aspect of their role um, and not get too sort of hung up on some of the details of the question. Now, in terms of some tips, mm. uh, the one that I think helped the most was just, first of all, making the employees feel comfortable that they mm. are eligible and qualified. Just right. giving them that confidence yeah. so that as soon as they go into the concert, they know that they are eligible and qualified because we've already done the assessment, we've provided the supporting documentation, so that the package that we prepare for them is really comprehensive and should there be any type of questions that might come up, the evidence is already included. So that would be step one. Yeah. 
The other thing is um, making sure that the employees, when they're responding to the consular officer's questions, it's not just simple yes or no responses. Mm-hmm. The more detail that you provide them, the more confident you will appear to the consular officer, uh, which will sort of increase the likelihood of getting your petition approved. Right. right. And, and I think that goes to what Mina said about being familiar with your petition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really critically important thing, especially for individuals who have, you know, been in the U.S., changed status from student status to H-1B, and haven't traveled outside the country in a couple of years. And during that time, like as with any job, um, especially, it's definitely a lot more prevalent in like large corporations to where there's so much room for mobility and, you know, changing teams, uh, just lockstep progressions in title that, you know, are not really at the core different from what was in their initial petition, but it's a, it's a different job altogether. Without familiarizing yourself with your petition, with, with the petition, the most recent petition that was approved by USCIS, the only petition that's on file, because you don't, uh, you know, file like whenever there's any sort of, you know, promotion or, or shift in employment in most cases. And so as a result, you could be talking to a consulate officer uh, honestly and forthright about your current position, but because of any of the language used, you know, if it's, it's just with a different team, if it's just uh, on a different project, it won't line up with what is in your petition that, that really causes a lot of uh, inconsistencies. Right. right. Yeah. And I, I think I'm kind of just echoing here too, but I, you know, I had noted that just to be very thorough in your preparation, uh, if you know the officer is going to be looking at a salary amount, like you should be able to, to the dollar, be able to tell them, you know, what, you know what I mean? What's in the forms right. and just accurately report this to them. If Hopefully you, you know if, what you're getting. Well, paid. sure, sure. Yeah. But you right. know, sometimes people get there and they're like, well, it's like something like that. Right. Officers really don't like that. They, they want these things to move nice and smoothly so, and quickly and be able to hang their hat on like, yeah, this was an approvable case. Uh, the thing too is like to, they are government officials and they can be like, your interview can be later than you anticipated. And like, mm-hmm. they can put you through all kinds of delays. Like you should be, wary of that like as you're going into the process but no matter what's happening just be polite with them like they're human beings at the end of the day and so like we do have cases that are super duper approvable but then we hear of like you know some things you know something happened sort of a thing and like it it was worse than it needed to be and we also get the impression that uh the person themselves the foreign national wasn't being as polite as they could and maybe that kind of exacerbated things so you really want to just like definitely err on the side of just just be pleasant with them be confident you know everyone who gets this visa has to go through the same process this isn't something weird that you have to do it's like we all you know everyone's doing the same thing and so if you qualify if you're qualified for it which you know if you have the petition approval and everything you are uh there, there's nothing strange to you know you shouldn't be yeah yeah well uh, to what storm is saying about the the salary that, that's actually hugely important because, you know, especially if you're right on the line as far as the wage goes in the petition. Like when you get your paycheck, you know, it's not your gross salary that's on there. It's it's whatever deductions that you, that's in there. And the DS-160, which is the main application you need to file, it asks for the monthly salary mm-hmm. on there. And people will look at their paychecks. They'll just look at the biweekly salary, multiply that by two, and include that as the monthly salary on there. But then when you just do the rough calculation and multiply that by 12, you, you come up with a figure that's several hundred, if not a couple thousand dollars less than what you're getting paid. And as soon as that calculation is done, you know, like that could be another issue for uh, like for the officer to pick apart. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like it's, it's definitely important to stay consistent mm-hmm. 
with what you have on the application. Confidence in the sense that you're, you're there for a reason, not to walk in sweaty, <laughs> looking guilty. You know? Yeah, and you can easily you know? get flustered. And I right. can um, speak to it from a personal experience, you know, being an immigration attorney. When Very I true. went and yeah. applied for my visa um, at the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa, I have to tell you, like, I know how the process works, mm. but even I felt a little bit flustered because it was an embassy that I was not familiar with. And so as soon as you come in, they're constantly sort of like telling you to move from this line to the next line. Mm. And usually, you know, at the beginning um, there's a security guard uh, that's standing at the door and they want to review your documents and I wasn't really expecting that. Um, and then intimidating. When, exactly. Right. And then you mm-hmm. go into this building that's sort of like being blocked off. You have to go through a security check, which is very similar to what you go through typically at an airport. So that was a little bit unsettling. Um, making sure that you don't have any big bags because there's no storage and being reminded of that. And then you have one consular officer that's reviewing your petition package and you think that, oh, this is the person that I'm going to be the interview. But it turns out that that's not the person that's doing the interview. They just want to make sure that you have all the required excuse me, documentation for the day. And then they ask you to go online in a second line. And so it's it can feel a little bit flustered. While the interview process itself might be less than three minutes, mm. the whole process of going through and waiting in different lines can take up to two, even three hours, wow. depending on how busy the consulate is on that day and the size of the consulate or embassy. Um, so it, c- it can get a little bit exhausting, especially for some people who um, either bring a spouse or if they aren't able to sort of have somebody take care of the children, yes. the children come with them as well. So it can feel a little uh, daunting. It could be sort of like a full day event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, a lot of people who go through the same process, it's completely new <laughs> to them and it's completely foreign and you just want to make sure that you're doing everything correctly as is. So Hopefully that brings a little bit more peace to mind. Absolutely. And I think it makes it a little bit difficult for us as attorneys to try to prepare um, individuals for some of these interviews because each consulate is also very different. Mm -hmm. And just because you went through a process um, with one consulate, it doesn't mean that it's going to be identical um, in another consulate. For example, in the case of even London, they recently moved to a new building. So the process has completely changed. Um, so somebody that had their initial L1 adjudicated uh, in London, and then when they apply for their extension, it's not going to be the same thing. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that, that goes all the way down to just the website interface that's yeah. on. <laughs> like for India and China, it's it's mostly the same but you know for canada mexico even the like european consulates the Mm -hmm. entire website interface is changed so yeah so like Mm. in order for us to customize our advice we would really need to have sort of like dummy account in order to in order to actively look into the system but like but you know like that's virtually impossible to 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 advise that specifically you know when preparing for appointments yeah i could mention uh there there isn't a yeah. bit of an eye test that the officers do you know so it's eye like test. yeah yes. so it's, well sure oh, so it's like you're, why were you holding out on us <laughs> i don't know about this yeah. eye test we're talking about websites right, right, right. Yeah. so well there is you know the, the the officer they can see your job title you can be a senior software analyst you know what i mean like uh, mm. they can know that you're very accomplished but if you're kind of walking in like you know some Tech companies in particular kind of have very lax dress codes. Yeah. If a U.S. government officer uh, is looking at how you're dressed and they don't feel that you're, uh, you, you know, you're not passing the eye test, yeah. like to, they don't feel like you're in that position, you're not a manager sort of thing, 
you want to be cognizant of that to you know Dress up again better. you're just giving them a chance to hang their hat on something they right. can say like yes this guy is very clearly fits his position that being said i actually had a conversation with a state department employee and he used to adjudicate visas and i asked him like you know how do you usually see people or what type of cases do you see where you look at them and you're like i don't think this person right, should get right. approved and he's like i would see some people coming in for a simple business visitor in like a three-piece suit oh yeah and well, so his well, thing much, was like yeah. what why is this person like over prepared? Like this should right, be a right. very simple um, application. So I think the main thing is like dress how you would expect, for example, a software engineer to dress, dress right. how you would expect an account executive or the way when you go to meet a client, how would you dress? Um, yeah, definitely business casual or higher, uh, right? Not, but not, not a three-piece three suit. suit. <laughs> no tuxedos. Yeah. Getting ready for a wedding. <laughs> right. Although so. I do appreciate bow ties. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can pull it off. Right. Yeah. There's only a certain few. Yeah. Or take, an ascot. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. If you're going to take away anything from this podcast, it's wear a bow tie to the VCU. Yeah. Hey, guys. Wear a bow tie. You're clean. You're good. Uh, <laughs> May I add oh. one more thing during oh, the interview yeah. process? I think what a lot of people, especially for technical roles, a lot of individuals that apply for like a software engineer type of position, they have a very specific definition of, for example, what is a tool, what is a platform. But usually the consular officers that are conducting these interviews, they don't come from a software engineering background. So I think it's important for foreign nationals to be cognizant of that. So for example, if a consular officer asks you a question when they're adjudicating like how specialized your knowledge is, they ask, oh, have you developed a tool within your company? Mm-hmm. Now, normally that candidate may have developed a platform, right. but not necessarily a tool. So we don't want you to say, no, I haven't, because that could automatically sort of deny your application and instead be able to sort of turn it around. No, while I haven't developed a tool, I have developed X, Y, and Z products within our company. Because usually a lot of these console officers are going to use the word like tool and platform interchangeably because for them it sort of means essentially the same thing. They only know the basics. Correct. Yeah, Yeah, it's important to be able to like concisely do this for them too because the officers like they have this in their head where it's like this is going to be 10 minutes tops. And and, like if you start getting too too much details, like it can be be bad but you know same thing mina is saying too about ideas like okay how long did it take you to to gather this specialized knowledge so if they they ask you a question that's so direct something like how long did x employer train you for this position right so if in the back of your head you know well hold on like most of this me gaining the specialized knowledge was actually through mentorship i wouldn't consider that to be training so same thing it might be like, well, this position didn't have like a lot of formal training, but there was actually a lot of mentorship that went into the position, right? And you have to point out that time period. So it's like you can't let the officer, you got to keep the goals of the, the visa and the status in, in the back of your head. You can't let the officer walk away thinking, uh, you know, f- for your very uh, hyper-technical specialized knowledge position that, oh, it, it just doesn't require training because you're trying to be super literal with your answers mm-hmm. about a question like how long did they train you, right? Yeah, so don't get caught in the weeds about it. <laughs> right, right. The semantics. Yeah. The semantics. Um, and have sort of understand where the consular officer is coming. They're not going to have um, a background, a technical background. So it's being able to sort of do that 30-second mm-hmm. elevator pitch. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, yeah. And do you guys usually uh, train like the clients of, that elevator pitch to have let her know beforehand like hey this is a quick summary of the responsibilities the roles what you Mm -hmm. do uh 
something short and concise. Absolutely. Yeah. And we also even sort of determine based on each individual employee that we sort of prepared this application. If there's somebody that I can see might be struggling with the way they're able to sort of articulate their role, for them we might even schedule a prep call where we'll do sort of like a mock mm-hmm. interview. Yep. Uh, whereas you have certain candidates that are able to like clearly articulate during like the initial call, like I know exactly what it is that they do, then I know that during the prep call, I don't have to go into extensive details because they're just so good at being able to sell themselves. Right. So you take each person sort of on an individual. Right. Yeah. And that part of the process is in part dealt with in the actual petition filing. Because one of the things that's happened is the spike in requests for evidence. And one of the things that they're addressing is, you know, this job description seems vague, generalized, or just incomprehensible to the USCIS officer who's reviewing it. So part of the process involves like <laughs> at the risk of saying dumbing it down but yeah. just making it into a little more so just explaining yeah, it uh, yeah simplifying it so that when you know the similar to the consulate officer the non-IT professional USCIS officer who is reviewing that will be able to clearly understand it and just to avoid a lot of that technical language okay so in terms of international travel uh, and I know we just got the news today with uh, the intermittent 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 L's yes with L's specifically for Canada, do you see any sort of other changes happening looking forward? Has any sort of policies been proposed? Well, I I can start on that. I would just say like sort of what we were talking about earlier, however the government can tighten anything up, they are. It sort of seems like uh, these very high-powered professionals who may have gotten, you know, this could be their seventh visa that they've gotten in there like clearly they're they're professional they're the employee that they say they are sort of thing but uh being treated like this is your first one like you've never had anything before like we've actually had there are memorandums uh memoranda with uh, usas in particular where it doesn't matter how many petition approvals you have every subsequent extension that follows uh, must be approvable on its own and sort of immigration attorneys have always kind of prepared things like that to begin with but it's sort of like managing expectations for foreign nationals where that that's happening now, like every government office where it doesn't, we don't, you know, the government officials don't care how many uh, visas you may have had in the past. You got to be ready just like it's your first one. So it's like definitely can't uh, slack off on the preparation or anything like that. And I'm saying if you don't see any sort of changes in the horizon, what would be any sort of tweaks you would suggest to help better facilitate the travel process? I mean, I guess the first thing would be to plan ahead, um, to give um, not only yourself, but us as well an opportunity so that we can make sure that if there are any kinks in the application, we have sufficient time to be able to address it, deal with it. And the other thing is that we're also seeing an uptick in visa appointment wait times. Mm. So before um, schedule um, or buying any tickets or making final travel plans, it's really important to reach out to our office um, to initiate the visa package process. And maybe Jeff can talk a little bit about that. For, I mean, mm. we can't talk about uh, consular processing or visa stamping without talking about administrative processing. I think that's the one like trigger word that's, mm. uh, that's definitely um, been at the forefront of, of all um, visa stamping processes. Administrative processing is just it's a term that's used when consulates need additional time for a variety of reasons to um, process your visa application. And the reasons could be because of any specific um, issue that's been identified, or it's in most cases, at least that I've seen, it's mostly due to just the overwhelming amount 
of uh, applicants, especially in the more highly populated countries uh, who are applying around the same time. You know, there's usually spikes in administrative processing around like holiday travel time or right before the October 1st start date to when, um, when mostly new H-1B um, candidates are trying to obtain a visa to come over to the U.S. for the first time. Um, and in addition to that, um, and with this new administration starting in like early 2017, started um, additional security and background checks. And it's not as simple as just, you know, going online and, and just Googling the, the person's name to see if there's uh, any issues with them. But these security and, and background checks take a sufficient amount of time. And when you multiply that additional time amongst thousands of applicants, and, and as Storm said, there's no um, credit that's given to a, to a previous applicant. It's all sort of on the first uh, case of first impression. These additional times and checks delay the standard processing time of what someone might see on the State Department's website. And to what Mina was saying earlier, the um, about about planning ahead. One of the biggest things that I see, especially when uh, individual tells me their travel plans, is to be flexible with their return date, because a lot of the times we have individuals who will want to travel abroad, who are traveling abroad for like two weeks, mm-hmm. and they they just want to knock out the visa stamping there. They see on they see on the State Department's website that you know um, I, I secured an appointment. I can uh, get my visa processed and in five days. So if I get it on the 24th, that means by the 30th, I'll be able to get out of here uh, on time. Virtually never the case. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, and we, and we, so we really tell them, you know, above all else, you need to be uh, flexible with your, uh, with your return date. If you don't allow yourself at least a sure. month for traveling, I mean, uh, the, the, like you're putting yourself in a bad position. Uh, like uh, two weeks is even like pretty, pretty risky. Right. Yeah. And just right. to add on it's, to it's Jeff's comment about mm-hmm. administrative processing, mm-hmm. so we have a lot of individuals that typically ask about, oh, do I have to go to my home country or can I just go to Mexico or Canada? Now, it's really important that if you are put in administrative processing, that could create, and you're not in your home country, that could create all sorts of issues because if you don't have valid authorization to be in that country beyond a certain date, that could be um, an issue and you'll have to go through the whole process again in your home country. Right. And plus, they could have your passport. I mean, it's very often the case you may have turned in your passport to get the visa stamp. You were told, uh, you know, hey, we, we might need to check in on some things. But yeah, you do hear of horror cases, horror stories where uh, all everything looked a go here. They've received your passport and then uh, now this is going to be delayed and we have to like cancel the whole thing. Uh, yeah, it can be a mess. All right. Well... If you have these attorneys that I'm looking at right now, you're in good hands. Thanks, uh, Ian. <laughs> for the entire process, for the entire process for visa stamping and the interviews in general. So uh, I'm really happy that you guys were able to come and sort of share your insights. And also, the biggest takeaway is that you know when you go for an interview, wear a bow tie. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way to go. <laughs> For more content and immigration updates, please visit our website at eiglaw.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG underscore law to join the conversation. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Like, how close to the mic are we? I literally haven't spoken to mic since, like, my best friend's wedding to when I was like, yeah. You're coming up fine. Okay, just making sure.